your pleasure is, turn to John 7. John chapter 7, that's what we're going to continue in. We're going to start with 11, verse 11, and we're going to go to verse 18. We need to read this section of John's Gospel in light of chapters 5 and 6, the feeding of the 5,000 and the healing of the paralyzed man. That aroused the interest of the crowd. However, there were mixed feelings about Jesus. As you read the feeding of the 5,000 and you read when he healed the paralytic man, there was mixed feelings about Jesus within the crowd. And because Jesus healed the paralyzed man on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders were angry. And they said, he is not from God. And in this section we're going to read now, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Jews began to debate with each other who Jesus is. And Jesus basically said, if you're truly seeking God's will and glory, you will know who he is, where he came from, and what he is teaching. So let's turn to our text now. John 7, starting with verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. We're going to just stop right there. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word, God, which is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And we ask you to illuminate our thinking right now, God, and help us, God, not only to understand this text, not only to understand what it meant to them 2,000 years ago, but what it means to us today in the 21st century. And God, help us not only to understand what it means, but to obey it and to apply it to our lives. In Christ's precious name. The thing I want to ask you tonight is, do you believe Jesus Christ and his word for God's glory, even when you stand in the midst of doubt and unbelief, and do you go to him for spiritual life? For those of you who were here when I spoke on John 7, verses 1 through 10, which was about a month ago, you may remember Jesus was on a divine timetable. He was not on man's timetable, which was the first point of this chapter. And the applicable point was, the first point when I spoke a month ago, is are you on the Lord's timetable? Don't miss the opportunity to believe in God's Son. Missing the opportunities due to one thing and one thing only, and that's unbelief. Everything Jesus did was at the precise moment his father had planned. His brothers wanted him to go to the feast and show himself to the world with a display of miracles. And this revealed one thing about them, their unbelief. And at this point, his own brothers 
who grew up with Jesus, saw him minister and perform miracles, signs and wonders, and his teaching, but were no different than the unbelieving Jews at this point in their life. The brothers' unbelief came from the fact that they wanted Jesus to do miracles and to amaze the people the way they were amazed at his miracles. They were really not interested in Christ, who for the glory of God chose to be crucified at the hands of sinful men and to pick up their own cross and follow Jesus. They were not interested in that kind of Jesus, as many are today. Oh yes, they believed in his miracles and they were amazed at them, but they did not believe in the Christ who would suffer and die and be raised back to life and the Christ who calls men to pick up their cross and follow him. They believed in the wrong Jesus, at least at this point in their lives. On the other hand, many of the Jewish people, especially the leaders, were not excited about Jesus' miracles, but were threatened by them. His brothers were amazed by them. The Jewish leaders were threatened by them. And the root of their unbelief for his brothers and the Jewish crowd was the same. Human praise rather than God's glory. The brothers wanted him to go to Jerusalem, show off his miracles, that they could get the human praise. Hey, this is my brother. Look at him. Look how great he is. The Jewish leaders, they were getting all the human praise by their human tradition. They were upset that Jesus upset their little religious system. When Jesus does eventually go to Jerusalem to the feast, it's the middle of the feast, and he is in the midst of debate. And if you haven't noticed, Jesus causes debate. He causes controversy. And Jesus will bring you to an eternal crossroad. If you read the book of John, every page is Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God. And then you also have, he brings you to a decision, he brings you to a decision, he brings you to a decision. That's the book of John. Praise God. And this is the second point. Christ's teaching causes debate with others, or even in your own mind, and your response to his teaching will determine if you're truly seeking God's will and glory or you're not seeking his will and his glory. And the, Jew, the Jews debated five different topics as they spoke about Jesus. We're only going to look at two tonight. I thought we were going to get through the five of them until I started really studying the text and it's just impossible <coughs> to get through five. I thought we were going through, verse, through verses 36 tonight, but we're only going to get up to 18. But the Jews debated five different things as they spoke about Jesus. And I'll give you the five, but we're only going to go through the two. They debated his character. They debated his doctrine, meaning his teaching. They debated his works. They debated his origin, where he came from. And they debated his warning. And in verses 8 and 9, we read that Jesus would not go up to the feast at Jerusalem at his brother's request because his time had not yet fully come. Their time was always here because they were operating on the world's timetable, not God's. They were going to face hostility at Jerusalem from the Jews. I should say they were not going to face hostility from the Jews, but Jesus was. The world did not hate them. It hated Jesus. They didn't, the world does not hate did not hate the brothers because they were not part of the world. However, the world hates Jesus because he testifies that its works are evil. So any time to go to Jerusalem would be okay for his brothers, but not for Jesus. 
he would go at the precise moment his father told him. And he did. Verse 10 says, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. See, his brothers wanted him to go to the feast and show off his miracles and win more amazed followers. But Jesus refused. But then he does go. And John tells us the way he went. He went privately. The very opposite of what his brothers wanted. Did you ever notice that Jesus does everything the opposite we want him to do? They wanted him to go for human approval. Jesus was going for God's glory, which was not what they admired about Jesus. It's not what they believed about Jesus. Are you seeking God's will and his glory? Are you seeking that? If you truly are, you will have to go against the grain as Jesus did. He did the opposite of what his brothers wanted, to, wanted him to do. So Jesus eventually does go to the feast. And when he arrives, verse 11 says, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Where is he? Where is that deceiver? And verse 12, 12 and 13 gives us the first debate, his character. Let's read it again. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke of him openly. Why did they not speak of him openly? It was fear of the Jews. Fear of man. Proverbs 29:25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And at this point, the Jewish authorities hated Hatred of Jesus excelled so much that they did not want him discussed even publicly. They put fear into the hearts of people. In the most extreme group, radical Islam, we see the same kind of fear injected not only into the people of their own religion, but the world. If you don't worship Allah, you are an infidel and deserve to die. In less extreme religious groups, you might be threatened to be excommunicated today, especially in strict Jewish families. To turn to Christ could mean your funeral. They treat you as if you died and they do have a symbolic funeral. But nonetheless, they discussed Jesus at the feast, but it was behind the scenes talk or whispering. However, this kind of whispering was murmuring, grumbling, quarreling whispering. It was reminiscent of Israel when they were murmuring and complaining um, against Moses and God in the wilderness. And there was also disagreement amongst the crowd. They were debating his character. Some said he's a good man, while others said, no, he's leading people astray. Both wrong. Jesus cannot merely be a good man. Good men never claim to be God. John 5, verses 17 to 18, But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, the Jews understood that he was making himself equal with God. It's amazing how many people call themselves Christians today that deny the divinity of Christ. In John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming to be God. John 10.33, the Jews answered him, it's not good, it, it is not 
for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself to be God. Once again, they understood what Jesus was saying. So good men would never claim to be God. Nor was Jesus leading people astray, which would make him a deceiver. By the way, it was this view that he was a deceiver. He leads people astray, which became the dominant view of the majority of the Jewish people, which led him to be crucified and killed. Deceivers, first of all, cannot perform the supernatural and authenticating miracles that Jesus did. John 10, 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And John 10, verses 37 to 38, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. And it's safe to say after 2,000 years, Men and women who have an encounter with Jesus Christ, their lives have been radically changed for the good. A deceiver cannot do that. A deceiver can only lead lives astray, astray into destruction. I remember having a discussion with someone about Jesus years ago, and that person said to me, Oh, I believe Jesus was a good man. I believe he was a teacher. It's the same today. People still say the same arguments. Jesus' character is still being debated today. His character is still on trial today. And we come to the second thing that they were debating. Verses 14 through 18 gives us a second debate. His doctrine, his teaching. <clears throat> Let's read that. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied so Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Now in spite of the urging of his brothers, to go up to the feast and to show himself as the Messiah with a display of signs and wonders. Jesus does not go the way they wanted him to go. He goes privately, as I said before, and not with an array of miracles, but he goes right into the temple and begins to teach. What did they expect? Go? Listen, Jerusalem. I mean, that was the time of the feast. The place was jam-packed. Go, Jesus, and do your miracles. No. He goes privately, and he goes right into the temple, and he begins to teach them. And this caught the Jewish leaders off guard and prevented the plans that they might have to kill him. Plus, many still at this point looked favorably towards Jesus, which made it difficult to arrest him publicly. And as they listened to Jesus, the Bible says they marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? You know, when I was in school, I had to study and study hard in order just to get a passing grade, never mind a high grade. And I think we all know parents who brag. I mean, well, anyway, they tell us about their children who always get the highest grades with minimal studies. They look at a page of history or a science book and they can recite it verbatim. Don't you hate people like that? <laughs> they were born with this intense intelligence. We have a little cousin like that, little Billy. You can tell little Billy your birthday, and seriously, you can tell him your birthday in 
the year 2016, and he thinks, and he computes, and bingo, he tells you the exact day. So if you told him, Billy, I was born October 21st, okay, now tell me what day it would fall on in 2016, and I'll tell you the, the exact day. Some people are just born that way, very intelligent. By the way, Billy was reading at three years old. However, John the Apostle is not just talking about Jesus' intense intelligence or his memorization of scriptures. Jesus' teaching was divine, and it was authoritative. They must have thought, listen, we've been to rabbinical school under the best teachers of the Torah, but this man was not even educated. And today that would mean he has not been to seminary or been ordained by a particular denomination. Instead of learning from Jesus, guess what? They were threatened by him. And if they only realized that Jesus is the living word incarnate, that he was the living word made flesh, as John 1.14 says. I remember when Christ saved me, I didn't know much of scripture. I read the Bible a lot. The first year I read, I read, read, but I still didn't know a lot. I didn't know how to articulate the scripture. And I was at my uncle's wake. My uncle had passed away. My other uncle was offended that I was speaking about Christ. And he said to me, there's more of us than you. And he meant his religion, that he was, he was brought up a Catholic, and he meant, you know, there's more of us than you. And without any hesitation, I said to my uncle, not knowing much of Scripture, I said, many are called, but few are chosen. <laughs> the conversation ended immediately. He didn't know what to say. It was in. Jesus' doctrine was from heaven. Man's doctrine is from their darkened minds. His doctrine was from the Father. Jesus' teaching came directly from the Father who sent him. He was always aware of having been sent and taught by the Father. John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. And then we come to John 12, verses 49 to 50. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Now, whereas the, the rabbi's teachings of, of Jesus' day came from the long line of human tradition, Jesus' teaching was directly from heaven, was directly from the Father's heart. Even the Old Testament pro prophets who were from God and did proclaim the truth, always said, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, on the other hand, always authoritatively said, I say to you, or he used to say, I tell you the truth. Listen to one example in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. See, Jesus didn't say, my father says, or thus says the Lord. He says, but I say. He was speaking authoritatively and divinely. Now, I have to remind you that although Jesus is fully God, he is also fully man. That's the great mystery of Christ. The person of Christ is fully 100% God and 100% man. 
And we, we have to understand that Jesus went into the temple and taught perfectly and accurately, not because he's the omniscient God. If we think that, that's incorrect. We must be careful of letting his divine nature swallow up his human nature. Jesus had human limitations when he walked the earth. And to learn, and he had to learn like any other human had to learn. Luke, second chapter, 52nd verse, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You see, he grew physically, he grew intellectually, he grew spiritually, and he grew socially. And when he took on human flesh, he submitted his divine attributes to the will of the Father. And although he had to learn, what he learned from was, was from heaven was from the mind and heart of the Father. Jesus is the only one who had perfect knowledge of the Father. So only he could speak directly from him, and this confounded the Jews. And even though he was fully human and had to learn from the Father, he was fully God, and he was able to speak authoritatively as God. And by the way, approximately a year later, Peter and John also confounded the Jewish leaders, because they too were unschooled, ordinary men, and exhibited such boldness as they taught the people. Listen to Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. If you've been with Jesus, you'll astonish your opponents. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 110 111.10 and Proverbs 9.10. If you have the fear of God in your heart, you have more wisdom than the smartest man that ever lived. They have worldly wisdom. You have divine wisdom that comes from God. And Christians do possess spiritual wisdom from above. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, We have the mind of Christ. Through the Spirit and the Word, believers can know the thoughts of their Lord. That astounds me, Amen. that we can know the mind of God. But how can one truly know if Christ's teachings are from God? Well, Jesus articulates that in verses 17 and 18. He says, if anyone wills, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there, there is no falsehood. Wanting God's will, you will know Christ's teachings are true. When you want to do the will of God, then you'll know his teachings are true. Anyone truly seeks to understand and to do the Lord's will will know that Christ's teachings are from God. F.W. Robertson, who was a British preacher, said this in the title of his sermon on John 7, 17, back in 1851. He said, obedience is the organ of spiritual knowledge. In his sermon, in the actual sermon, he said, what is truth? Study, said the Jews. Act, said Christ, and you shall know. In other words, if sinners would humble themselves at God's word, where his will is revealed to know and obey it, they will know it is true. In the Old Testament, God told Israel, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search him, you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 4.29. It's very simple. 
very simple. If you reject the scriptures, you don't want God's will. For the scriptures are the will of God. I had a Christian friend who had a wife who actually tore the page of scripture out of the Bible that spoke of the, the wife's duty of submission to her husband. She was not interested in truth or doing God's will. We have another friend, four of us, we have a friend, Pastor Damien, who was marrying a couple. And this actually happened at the wedding. When it came to the part to ask the bride, do you promise to obey um, and love your husband? And this is how she responded in front of the whole audience. She said, I do promise to love but not obey my husband. I wouldn't want to be there marrying them at that point. I mean, that put him on a, a very peculiar spot. Seekers of truth are fundamentally committed to doing God's will. That's what the truth, that's the bottom line. If you want to, if you really have the will to do God's will, you're going to know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Why were the Jews not able to assess Jesus' teaching correctly? Because they were not seekers of truth, and they were not seeking the glory of God. They were egotistical, they were proud, they were arrogant, they were not seekers of truth or God's glory. They sought glory from one another, and they came with their own authority, not God's authority. John 5.44 says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus, on the other hand, never sought his own glory, but the glory of his Father. He came with his Father's authority. He spoke the truth, and there was no falsehood in him. It would take too much time to tell you how Jesus, throughout his ministry, glorified the Father. But a few examples are, he didn't come to serve, but to, but to be, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. Matthew 20, 28. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. Philippians 2.8. This was all done to the glory of God the Father. This is God, this is what God wanted him to do. This is what he did, and he glorified the Father. You know, even in Christ's exaltation, it was to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2.11 tells us. Are you a seeker of truth? Then you need to ask yourselves these questions. Am I doing, am I willing to do God's will? Am I willing to do God's will? Is that your ultimate goal? Now you may have battles, and in certain areas, you're pleading with God to make you willing. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's responsibility and sanctification is to empower you and to make you willing to do his will. Your responsibility is to obey his will and his word. Are you willing to do his will? You have to ask yourself that question. Secondly, are you ultimately living to glorify him? What motivates you to do what you do? I could ask myself this question. 
what motivates me to be up here to preach a message for Jesus Christ? Jesus was selfless, and everything he did was to glorify his Father. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. You as a believer have the potential in every aspect of your life to honor God. The Westminster West Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism, first question is, what is man's chief end? And they answer this, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's beautiful. To glorify God, and not only to glorify Him, but to enjoy Him forever. I don't think people that belong to particular denominations or whatever, I don't think they enjoy God. People that don't know Christ, they know religion, but they don't know Christ. They know hypocritical religion, but they don't know the true religion, the pure religion. I don't think they can enjoy God. Matter of fact, I know they can enjoy God because they're always under that works mentality. That's why Jesus said, come to me and learn of me. I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ's teaching, the third thing is Christ's teaching will cause debate whether with others or in your own mind. How do you respond to others? And how do you respond yourself to his teaching, his word? First, how do you respond to others? Make no mistake about it. When you tell people the true gospel, you are teaching them Christ's truth. And more than likely, debate will arise. If you haven't experienced that yet, hold on, you will experience it. Is your faith stronger than your fear? Amen. I want to read something from Dr. Gary Berg from his commentary. I think this was beautiful. He says, It is naive for Christians to think that the good news of the gospel is going to enjoy a warm reception when it is given to the world. It is naive to think that if people simply understand the truth correctly, if they have the message of Christ fully explained, or if they meet a true Christian, they will be converted. It is presumptuous to think that the world is an, is an eager, recept receptive vessel waiting to be filled with the presence of God. The world is in, re excuse me. The world is in rebellion. It is skilled at asking religious questions and feigning spiritual interests, such as, uh, but such inquiries are nothing more than disguised, sophisticated rebellion. Is this man from Galilee? Where did this man get all this learning? Is the, is the Messiah supposed, isn't the Messiah supposed to arrive mysteriously? Why doesn't he show himself to the world? Jesus fields such questions in his chapter just as he has been interrogated throughout the centuries by men and women eager to engage in religious dialogue but reluctant to meet God. Christian, stand strong. Don't cave in. Allow God's spirit to strengthen you. Do what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's how you respond. And when you are doing this, you're doing God's holy will and you're glorifying God. 
And if you're debating in your own mind the teachings of Christ, and if you're a Christian, stop the debate at once. Determine to do God's will. Obey his word and the debate will cease to his glory. When you're determined to do his will, the debate will cease, guaranteed, to do his glory. There's a lot of things I don't understand in the Bible. But I do it out of obedience. I don't have any more debates in my mind. Could I believe this? Is this true? I don't believe, I don't think that way anymore. I used to. No more. The debate has stopped in my mind because I'm determined to do the will of God. Amen. And if you're not a Christian tonight, I plead with you to carefully consider the teachings of Jesus Christ. Your eternal destiny depends on it. There is no second chance when you breathe your last breath. Christ came in the fullness of time, clothed himself with frail humanity, lived a perfect life, suffered and died at the hands of sinful men, rose again from the dead. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father and is ready to come back, rescue his church, and destroy his enemies. Amen. And if you're not a Christian, or if you are a Christian and not, or not a Christian, I plead with you to hear me. Allow Christ to teach you and don't debate him. I want to conclude tonight by reading the words of an old hymn by Benjamin, Benjamin Ramsey in 1919. Teach me thy way, O Lord, teach me thy way. Thy guiding grace afford, teach me thy way. Help me to walk upright, more by faith, less by sight. Lead me with heavenly light, teach me thy way. When I am sad at heart, teach me thy way. When earthly joy depart, teach me thy way. In hours of loneliness, in times of dire distress, in failure or success, teach me thy way. When doubts and fears arise, teach me thy way. When storms overspread the skies, teach me thy way. Shine through the clouds and rain, through sorrow, toil, and pain. Make thou my pathway plain, teach me thy way. Long as my life shall last, teach me thy way. Where my lot be cast, teach me thy way. Until the race is run, until the journey's done, until the crown is won, teach me thy way. Amen. Father, we thank you and we praise you. Teach us your ways, O God. For the unconverted sinner here tonight, teach him your way, Lord. Teach him that he is a sinner. Or she is a sinner. Teach them that they need to repent of their sin and turn to you. And to put their full trust in you. And for the Christian tonight, teach them the way of sanctification. Teach them the way of obedience. Teach them the way of suffering. That we might all glorify you, our Father in heaven. In Christ's precious name.